Welcome to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network, a show that streams health, happiness, and hope to the kidney community. You can download all Kidney Talk shows from iTunes and find a variety of resources to help you navigate this illness at rsnhope.org. Please welcome your host, Lori Hartwell, who has lived with kidney disease since the age of two. Well, today on Kidney Talk, we have a subject that, you know, a lot of people don't like to talk about, but it's important because we hear it on Facebook that, you know, I went to get uh, evaluated for a transplant and they wouldn't put me on the list. They said I had to do certain things. They said I wasn't a candidate. And today we're talking to Catherine Bornhurst, and she is a kidney pancreas clinical transplant coordinator at Cedar sinai Medical Center. So welcome to the show, Catherine. Well, thank you, Lori. It's great to be here. So, you know, can you explain a little bit when you're doing the evaluation for somebody to be on the transplant list and uh, what they have to go through? Well, there are a number of areas that we look at when we're trying to identify a patient that might be acceptable for a transplant. And there are two arms to that. We have the medical uh, side and we have the psychosocial side. Um, so they have to meet two different sets of criteria to be eligible for transplant listing. And in terms of the medical side, we have a number of tests and studies that the transplant candidate needs to go through in order to be deemed acceptable to make sure that they're healthy enough uh, to be a transplant candidate. Um, in addition, on the psychosocial side, there are a number of factors that we need to look at to make sure that once they do get their transplant, they're able to keep that transplant from rejecting. Well, you know, because um, people think, oh, I get a transplant and, you know, life's going to just be cheery. And, you know, you still have a chronic illness. <laughs> it doesn't change overnight. You're, you know, it's uh, um, a lot of my friends and including myself have suffered from depression. Um, you're, you're taking different kind of medications. So you have to be in the best shape possible to get a transplant. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what we're trying to figure out you know, on the pre-transplant side, making sure that we cover all our bases because you're absolutely right. Just by getting a transplant doesn't mean we're going to cure all your other medical issues. You're still going to have to manage your uh, disease processes that you already have, such as high blood pressure, diabetes. You still have to manage that and, and deal with the issues that come along with chronic disease. We are giving you a nice, new, healthy kidney, but with that trade-off, you know, we're going to make you take immunosuppressions or medications, anti-rejection medications for the rest of your life. And so you're trading in dialysis and having to do treatments like that for taking medications and, and dealing with, you know, the side effects that might occur um, and all the uh, things that we need to do post-transplant to keep that kidney from rejecting. Now, I know that different transplant centers have different policies, so we're going to be talking, you know, a little bit probably what Cedar sinai does and the general uh, process. Um, but it is, if people go to different centers, a lot of people have different criterias for accepting people on the list. Do you find that? Absolutely right. Um, there are, of course, generalities across all transplant centers in the United States. We have the main sort of medical concerns that we deal with, but there are certain criteria that sort of, you know, um, varies from center to center. Um, those items such as, say, BMI, which is your body mass index, um, you know, at what point is somebody not a candidate for transplant based off of how much do they weigh? Each center has different criteria. I mean, here at our center, you need to have a BMI less than 40 in order to get a transplant with us. 
Um, other centers may be a little bit more lenient or um, actually we're more, one of the more aggressive centers. Um, but we do make individuals lose weight so they can get to the point where it's safe to actually undergo surgery, um, undergo anesthesia, um, and there's a lot of issues that go along with, say, obesity. So that's one of the criteria that does vary. Another important factor is age. Um, I know it's, it's difficult to talk about an age criteria with transplant, but age is a, is a factor, and, and all centers have their different age requirements in terms of how old somebody could be to safely undergo a transplant. Um, again, speaking for our center, uh, we will transplant you um, up to the age of 75 years old. Um, but again, we're one of the more aggressive centers, and other centers may um, cap it at 70 years old. And it's not being um, prejudiced against someone's age. It's um, about safety and outcome. And the older you are, the worse outcomes we have seen um, with kidney survival. Um, so there are great reasons why we set these um, policies and procedures in place. It's not just to be discriminatory. It's for uh, the reason of patient safety and uh, kidney graft outcome. Well, the reality is is that there's a, a long list for people waiting on the transplant list for deceased donor kidney. It's close to 100,000. And so, you know, when you're making a decision to give somebody a deceased donor kidney, and you you think that person doesn't have a high success rate because of, you know, their BMI or they're too old, you're actually taking a kidney away from somebody else. And those are difficult decisions, but it's the reality of how precious the gift of life is. Oh, you're absolutely right, Lori. I mean, it's, it's so precious. And the quantity is, I mean, there are just not enough organs, both living uh, donation and deceased donation. So we have, like you said, thousands and thousands waiting for organ transplant. Um, but not everybody is a candidate for that reason. And we have to make sure the person that we actually choose to put on the list or transplant with a deceased donor and living donor is actually going to be able to keep that kidney for a very long time. Um, and we, we, don't, we, we don't take this uh, decision um, lightly. We really thoroughly investigate the patient and make sure that we're doing right by the patient and taking a kidney from the pool where others are, are still waiting for an organ. Now, what about if you've had cancer? How do you approach that? So that's a great question because uh, cancer, some people think that, oh, I have cancer that I absolutely never could get a transplant. Um, or some people think, well, it was just a little skin cancer. Why should I be concerned? Cancer is a huge uh, factor for every transplant center that you go to because with a history of malignancy, um, we're potentially... Um, going to exacerbate that disease and make possibly that can cancer from to spread to cause um, metastasis if we give you anti-rejection medication. So anti-rejection me medication suppresses your immune system. And if you have cancer cells, those cancer cells will not be protected anymore by your immune system because we're suppressing it for the kidney transplant. If they're not being protected and watched over, those cancer cells can proliferate, they can uh, gain in abundance and cause cancer in other areas of your body. So certain cancers have different time periods of safety, if you will. You have to be in remission for a certain number of years when we know it's safe that those cancer cells will not come back. And every cancer has a different wait period time. So that's one reason why they might not be eligible at this point. We may say, come back to us in five years, for instance, for colon cancer, breast cancer, and see us, and we will evaluate you. Or if it is a skin cancer, we may say, come back in one year. If you've had no more recurrence, then you're safe to transplant. 
So it is a main factor in determining whether someone is appropriate to move forward. Now, I've met some patients that said, oh, I can't get a transplant because I've had cancer. And basically, if they've been cancer-free for five years, a generality again, they can potentially be transplanted. Yes, they can. Um, So that is something that people need to know. Um, Colon cancer and breast cancer are really one of the... um, the strong ones, that we do have to wait full five years. But if they've been in remission, they've had no other flare-ups of cancer, they certainly can go back to the transplant center that they're working with, and they'll have the proper clearances, they'll have all the lab studies to show that it has not recurred, and then they can be considered. So those people should absolutely go back to their transplant centers and say, I want to be reevaluated. Now, one of the other questions we get is that, you know, I have to wait till I'm on dialysis to get transplanted. And, you know, can you explain that? Because that's not quite the truth. Oh, that is not true. And we have so many people who have not stepped forward because they thought they had to be on dialysis. They thought that was end-stage renal disease. Um, end-stage renal disease, yes, it's anything that has a um, glomerular filtration rate of 20% or below. They may not be on dialysis, but they're absolutely eligible for transplant services. And it's what we call preemptive transplant, meaning we want to give you a kidney before you have to experience the effects of dialysis and go on dialysis. So it's absolutely appropriate. In fact, we encourage all community nephrologists, dialysis centers for early referral, meaning when that GFR hits at 20% or below, then they are appropriate to come forward for transplant and we can get a head start on it, hopefully transplant them before they get the effects of the dialysis treatment. Yes, it's. I have a couple of friends that avoided dialysis and, you know, they, they sometimes feel guilty when they're a group of people that, you know, bit on dialysis, but we're like, no, you didn't want to go through this if you didn't have to. Absolutely not. If they don't have to, I know. Um, absolutely, they should. They should come forward. Yes, definitely. And and what's interesting to me is I I, I run into some of the people that say, oh, I have a living donor who's going to donate a kidney, and uh, we're the same blood type. She's my sister or brother, and. The thing is, is that you cannot get a transplant unless you're put on the national transplant list, which people get confused because they think, well, I don't need to get on the list because I have a kidney by a friend. That is another misnomer out there. Um, yes, when, when anyone comes forward for a transplant evaluation at any center, it's not just ours, um, they will actually be placed on the national list for a deceased donor transplant because UNOS regulates who is getting a transplant. So they have to be registered. So they know who is in need of a transplant, who's getting one. Because even if we do a living donor transplant, you know uh, the network, United Network for Oregon Sharon, understands they need a transplant. And once they get a living donor, then we actually go into you knows, we indicate that the person's been transplanted with a living donor, and then we remove them. It's all sort of tracking and statistics. But you have to be approved for the national list to get a living donor transplant. I'm like, so you want to start that process. If you know you have a GFR of 20 and you have a potential donor in your family that wants to donate, you got to start moving. That's the perfect (laughs) scenario, Lori, right there. You have a living donor and you haven't started dialysis get into a transplant center and be evaluated. Those, because the outcomes are going to be so much better, we want you at the healthiest point that you can be. And if you haven't started dialysis, then you're, you're pretty darn healthy, believe it or not, healthier than those that are on dialysis. So we want to get you in before you start succumbing to some of the issues that um, surround being on dialysis and the effects that dialysis has on your body 
cardiovascular-wise. So that's really the best-case scenario, and that's called early referral, preemptive transplant. And do you have to have a nephrologist refer you to the center, or could, if I knew my GFR was 20, can I just call and make an appointment with CEDARS? Yeah, absolutely. So we have self-referral. Um, we have referral from dialysis centers, nephrologists, and primary care physicians. The self-referrals are those people who say, I want to get a transplant evaluation. My GFR is 18, um, and they self-refer. We absolutely take the referral, and then we just uh, corroborate with their nephrologist, and we get the medical records um, that we need, and we start the process. On a couple of occasions, it doesn't happen very often, but there are a few nephrologists in the area that have told patients that they need to be on dialysis before they get transplanted. And in this particular case, I've told patients to basically, you need to self-refer to the unit. And because uh, you have to be evaluated by a transplant physician, not a nephrologist, if you're eligible for a transplant. Correct. Um, so nephrologists, first of all, you know, that might, that's just misguided information. They absolutely can come ahead of time before they're on dialysis. They do not have to be on. And if the nephrologist is not, you know, taking upon themselves to refer the patient, then that patient has every right to come to us independently, knowing that they have a right for transplant services. For those people that are on dialysis, it's actually that law where the dialysis center has to refer a patient and offer transplant services. So they should be aware of that if they are on dialysis. But those that are not absolutely can come forward and they should know that they don't have to wait for the nephrologist to refer them. If somebody smokes, can they get a transplant? So smoking is an issue um, with transplant. It depends on how heavy of a smoker that they are. We do counsel them when they come for their evaluation with us and everybody will tell them, you need to stop smoking. We provide them with services of how they can um, go about that, um, whether it be counseling or like the 1-800-BUTS, no-BUTS, or medication, because we do want them to quit smoking. Um, smoking has detrimental effects to a transplanted kidney um, because of the uh, vascular issues with smoking. Smoking, as we know, is bad for coronary arteries. It hardens arteries, causing blood flow not to be able to go through. And if you think about the new kidney we're giving you, those vessels are so small that when you continue to smoke, it's going to go right down to the micro level and affect those vessels, the arteries and veins that feed the kidney with the, with the blood that keeps it alive. It's going to affect those so they close off and blood flow can't get through to feed the new kidney. And when you've got that sort of situation, you're putting your new kidney at harm's way of rejecting. Um, so we really, truly um, impress upon the patients not to smoke for this reason. Not only for that, but also for anesthesia reasons and making sure your lungs are clear and not having any lung issues to get through the surgery. So it, it is a big issue, and if someone is such a chronic smoker, they will not stop. That may be one thing that prevents them from being placed in the national list. And what about um, past drug use? Like if somebody's recovered drug addict or alcoholic? Yeah, that's an, another great question. So past drug use is... Um, is of concern. If it is a remote history of drug use and, they've, uh, and they have quit, they're sober, they're clean, um, we have everybody sign a contract that states, I will abstain from all drugs and alcohol, whether it's illicit drugs um, off the street or prescription drugs or alcohol. We make them sign a contract. We also talk screen them. And if they are currently 
actively using, we then make sure that they get the help that they need. We provide the psychosocial services um, and we put them on a hold for a minimum of six months to a year and give them that time to come to grips with it and to stop. Um, but they absolutely have to be clean and sober from all um, drugs. And that includes prescription drug use. If someone is addicted to, say, painkillers, then we will have them go to the pain center. We will have them be seen because that, some people think, is not an issue, but it actually is very much an issue for us. I know. It's all drugs. Some are just by a prescription and some are illegal. I know they're the same thing. I mean, it's, it's, um, and especially when you get transplanted, I mean, it, it, the medication, prednisone, different types of medication can play with your psychosocial well-being. And you have to, you know, have to have your act together. <laughs> well, that's so true. And the, and the psychosocial substance abuse also goes hand in hand with, um, you know, any sort of psychosocial issue that a person may have. So psychiatric issues is another concern why we may not accept a patient until they're controlled. So again, um, post-transplant, the medications we put you on could actually exacerbate situations of depression, anxiety. It could actually make things worse. So we want to make sure going into a transplant that we have a good plan for you psychosocially. We've got a psychiatrist that's going to follow you and manage you um, and also manage the medications that you're on so you don't experience the effects that maybe the anti-rejection medications um, has, a, has a part in. Like you said, with, with prednisone, that's a steroid. That can make you a little bit anxious. Yes. If you're coming in with anxiety, well, and we don't know how to deal with it, and your anxiety gets out of hand post-transplant, we want to know how we're going to deal with that before we have to hit that uh, mark. Um, so it's a, it is another big concern. It could be a concern enough that we wouldn't list you for transplant until we had that stable and we had a solid plan with you. Um, now, one of the is- other issues that comes up is adherence. Now, there are patients that have had previous transplants that may have not taken their meds and they lose their transplant. How do you go about handling um, adherence? And then also, if there's a history of somebody that's, that misses dialysis treatments, do you get that note? Um, how do you handle people that da- don't have a good track record of adherence? Oh, boy. And we, we really drill on the compliance issue. Um, so basically, to answer your first question about those that have lost their graft due to noncompliance, those that have not taken their medication or followed the guidance of the transplant team and they lose their kidney, um, which is such a crime because, again, the shortage is so great and then we have somebody who's just not taking care of it. In those instances, then, um, for our center only that I can speak of, um, we make sure that they have um, gone back on dialysis and they had to have been back on dialysis for at least one year before we will consider you. Um, So if the transplant fails, um, we wait for them to progress to the point they go back to dialysis, and then one year to show us that they are ready and committed to move forward again. Um, So that is one of the main requirements of someone who's lost their graft. Um, Medication compliance, missing dialysis treatments, we follow up with the dialysis social worker. We're in tune with them. We um, make a plan with the dialysis center. We follow up with the dietitian at the dialysis center. Are they following their renal diet? Even that is an issue. Um, are their labs stable? So we make a contract with the patient, and we give them a period of time to show us that they can follow a regimen, that they can attend all their dialysis center uh, sessions. So essentially, we put them on a hold for typically six months to show us that they are ready to proceed, and we follow them very closely. 
And the moment that they don't get a good response back from the dialysis center, they've missed sessions, then we will recommend that we uh, inactivate their case and they can come back to us in a year's time after they've shown that they can be compliant and adherent to their regimen. Well, one of the things that may um, happen, and I don't know, this is just probably one of the urban myths, but one of the patients like, well, they're taking it out on me, like the unit's taking it out on me. <laughs> I've heard this too, that they're upset with me because I want, I'm not, I'm not non-compliant. I just don't agree with their care. And I always suggest to the patient that, you know, maybe if you're not, you know, getting along well with the unit or you're having some kind of conflict because of different things, maybe you should do home dialysis. That's always an option. And um, and then you can do it more your way and have the outcomes you need to get transplanted because it is a medical practice and every center has the opportunity to practice the way they want. And uh, that's what I tell them. I'm like, it's their practice. You know, we got to abide by what they want us to do. It's We're not medical doctors. Right. And they're there to help the patient, obviously, and make sure that they're getting the care that they need. And they may have certain requirements. I mean, that's a question I do hear a lot. They're saying, well, the dialysis center social worker is after me. It's exactly what I hear, you know, and they harp on me for this and that. But there's a reason, um, and maybe they don't understand it at the time, but um, it equates into how well they're being dialyzed, what their labs look like, and if they're off, if all of this is off, their labs are off because they're not following their renal diet, for, for instance, that means that they're in jeopardy of very harmful effects to their body, and the medical team understands that. Um, it may not translate for the patient. They may not understand why they want them to follow something a certain way, um, but you're right. They set it up as they want to run their practice, and in order to prove that they're ready to commit to transplant, which is another um, animal altogether, we have to make sure that they're going to follow what their nephrology team and dialysis center team is, is doing. Well, there was a case in the country of a patient that, you know, um, had a, a dialysis catheter. And um, basically, they refused to have a permanent access put in. And this was after three or four years of dialysis. So they had a central line catheter for several years, and the transplant center ended up putting the patient on hold because of that. And because they felt that, you know, they were having problems with other issues because of the catheter. And this person was quite upset with the transplant center because um, they were eligible for permanent access. They didn't want another surgery. Um, And I, I understand that, but at the same time, a catheter is just so darn dangerous and, um, but does that ever happened at your center where you've had a patient that just will not, it will refuses to get a permanent access and keeps a catheter for years? Well, I have to say that it has happened. Um, it's, that's not something that, you know, uh, we're immune to either. Um, we have patients who refuse, um, with their nephrologist to get permanent access. Um, now we can understand if it's within like say 18 months and they're, they're planning on getting a transplant straight away then yes, there's leeway for that. Um, but I've never heard anything three to four years running with a, with a catheter. Yep. Um, but it, it's a point that if they're not going to follow what their nephrologists say, how do we know they're going to follow what we say if they don't like what we have to tell them? Right. So to us, it's a good marker. And if they won't follow what the professional nephrologist that is caring for them says that you need permanent access, that speaks volumes to us. Okay, we may not know this patient at all, and if they won't do what their own doctor is telling them to do, 
we have no guarantees that they're going to do what we need for them to do. If, say, they're having a rejection episode, we, you need to come in for a biopsy. Will they come in for a biopsy or not? You know, maybe they won't agree with a biopsy. Now they're going to possibly lose their kidney because they don't believe in what we have to say. So we need the patient to be flexible and follow the regimen, and that's one of the markers that we have to look at. You know, it's a medical practice, and, you know, you go to different physicians or hospitals, They everybody has a little different way of doing things, and sometimes you might have a, a difference with a, a center or a clinic, and it's your right to go find another center and see what they have to say, but it sounds like a lot of these guidelines are pretty universal. <laughs> they are universal, absolutely, and, and everybody does have a right, um, you know, to go to a different transplant center for a consultation. Um, certainly here in Southern California, we're fortunate enough that we have 11 transplant centers in our region alone. Um, so there are many options. Um, and then also I say that with the dialysis center in nephrology, if they're really having such a hard time, they also have the right to go to another team, another yeah, physician. That's what I tell them consistently because it's, you know, sometimes you just don't click. <laughs> and and that's, that's, you know, I've had that happen and then you find somebody. But if you're hearing this from multiple people, then you probably have to take a look and, and change some of your behavior. Um, the last question is, is financial. Now, um, you know, there may be a reason why people are denied because of finances. And can you maybe give a little overview of that? You know, it, it is a more frustrating topic because of insurance coverage. And, and there's this sort of sentiment with patients that, oh, I was denied a transplant because, you know, I can't pay for it or I don't have the right insurance and it's all about money. And it's not really. It's actually um, protection for the patient because we've got to make sure, first of all, that you have a, a policy that's going to cover transplant services and, most importantly, a policy that's going to cover the transplant medications. Giving you a nice new healthy kidney is going to mean nothing if you don't have the coverage to pay for those medications post-transplant. Um, so we really make sure we have a whole finance team that manages that part of it to make sure that once we give you a kidney, do you have um, the means to be able to pay for the medications? Is your policy you know, coverage adequate enough? Um, and sometimes we have to put patients on hold until they get into a new policy or um, get enough information to get funds for um, the share of costs that might be involved with some of the patients who have Medi-Cal. Um, it's not to penalize them, but it's for protection to make sure they can keep that new kidney. Um, but insurance authorizations, certain centers are contracted with different insurance companies and say they want to come to Cedars, but if we're not contracted with that company, then they need to go to a different transplant center. Um, but it's all really for the protection of the patient. Well, in my situation, I had um, private insurance when I, you know, went to get transplanted, and then Medicare was my secondary. I was very grateful to have, you know, Medicare to pick up that other 20%. And then it switched where Medicare was my primary, and um, my private insurance is my secondary. And the thing is, is Medicare only covers you for three years after you've been transplanted. So my Medicare ended in February, and now I have to pick up 20% of any of my procedures that I have. And it can get quite costly. It can be quite costly. And, it's, and it can be, you know, what turns people away from transplant, knowing because we do give you a cost breakdown of what's going to be required post-transplant. Um, thankfully for end-stage renal disease, we have that Medicare coverage 
for those with ESRD. I'm so grateful because we would be in quite a bit of debt right now if we didn't have that. (laughs) Absolutely. But the whole idea, too, is that once you get a transplant, then the idea is that you're going to be well enough down the road to be able to then work and, and, um, you know, compensate for that difference by making your own salary and getting money that way as well. So that's why they then take away the Medicare if you're not uh, Medicare eligible due to age. So if it's yes. strictly from ESRD, well, then essentially your, your end-stage renal disease is gone because we've given you a new transplant. Um, and it is expected from the government that you would go back to working. And that's what it is. I mean, there's a, a bill out there for lifetime immunosuppressant drug benefit. And, you know, we've all worked on it very, you know, very vigilantly. And it hasn't really gone where we wanted it to go. The big thing that's um, wonderful right now is that healthcare reform. They can't exclude you with a pre-existing condition. So you actually can get health insurance. I mean, anybody can get health insurance. I don't know what the cost is or what the coverage would look like, but at least that's like that's leaps and bounds where I was when I was um, transplanted. It, it gives us hope that we, you know, they'll pick, they'll return. They have to return our phone calls or emails. They don't have to put the delete when you put, you know, some kind of pre-existing illness in the column. No, that's definitely huge, especially for our population. Absolutely, with the, all their comorbidities and the end-stage renal disease, that's so important, so very important. And I've also heard that living donors or people who want to donate were afraid to donate because they're afraid of being labeled of having a pre-existing condition. And so, I mean, I think that law may help um, everybody. Well, and then, I mean, I guess in closing, I mean, are there any other issues you can think of that, you know, people are put on hold, but when you're put on hold doesn't mean that they're being kicked off the list? <laughs> they just need to do a few things. There's two important points I'd like to make here. Um, one is um, that we haven't really addressed is the lack of a caregiver or post-transplant oh, support plan. Thank you for bringing that up because I've heard that too. Like, I don't have anybody to take care of me or I live too far from the center so they want me close and I can't afford that. So yeah, please give us that information. Honestly, people think, okay, well, I've gotten through the entire medical workup. I'm, I'm good to go, but now they're not going to list me because I live by myself and I have no friends or family. They think it's absurd. But from our point of view... You have to have a very solid support plan. We need to make sure that there's going to be somebody there that will be able to help you in especially the first um, month after transplant to help you with just everyday things. To It's not to give you bed baths or do anything like that, but to just to assist you because you're going to have to manage this post-transplant course, and we're throwing a lot at you, managing your medications and things like that. Um, we need somebody that you can lean on because it does take a village once you're transplanted. And if you have no support plan or caregiver, um, that is of concern for us. And we actually will stop the evaluation. We may not list you um, until you're able to prove that you have at least two caregivers that are going to be there to help you with um, post-transplant concerns. Well, and I didn't drive for the first month. I mean, I had somebody take me to my appointments and it was early in the morning and I'm adjusting to medication. It's There's a lot of different things that you have to prepare for. And, and I'm so grateful I had a very large support system. <laughs> You're, yeah, that's very, very fortunate. And some people don't have that. And um, in order to be accepted, you do need to, because of course you can't drive for the first two to four weeks after transplant. In addition to that, you can't take public transportation or shared, you know, medical vans because of the fact that you just had a transplant and you're immunosuppressed. 
So we need to make sure you have private transportation to get to and from your post-transplant visits. So not only do you have to be pristine medically, but psychosocially in this caregiver plan has to be in place. But, you know, we can work on that and get you to the point where it's acceptable, um, but it can be something that's, you know, a barrier to getting you listed and transplanted sooner than, than you think. I know I've heard that on several occasions where people have showed up at uh, the RSN support group and they're very frustrated because of the fact that they don't have any support. And we, we suggest to go for them to go get involved in their community, go to a church, get involved and make um, friends of people that would help them. I mean, you have to kind of push out of your comfort zone, but it's just a reality. I know I needed a lot of support. I need people to go to the grocery store for me. I mean, I needed things, and actually, um, I had the, of course, you know this, but I went through the desensitization protocol at Cedars-Sinai, which I'm so grateful. I'm three years out in a 0.7 creatinine. I'm doing wonderfully. And, uh, but I chose to rent an apartment and remove myself from, I have a very busy house and I have animals and I just like, I want to move out of my house to just do as best as I can to give this kidney the best shot possible. And I had the means to be able to do that, but you know, I had people shopping for me, driving for me and, um, very, very, very grateful, but it, it all worked out. And the extra effort that I put in to having a successful transplant, I haven't had knock on wood and I'm going to find as much wood as I can. I haven't had one complication and this is my fourth transplant. And I thought I'd used all my lives up. I was a hundred percent antibodies, and you know I'm very grateful to Dr. Jordan and Cedar Sinai for the life that they've given me because oh, I feel that's great. That's so great to hear, and um, it's it is so encouraging for those folks who are suffering from um, high antibodies. I mean, that's another another area that people think they just couldn't be transplanted because they have high ant- antibodies, but they need to know that there is center, there are centers out there. And we're one of the main centers for that. Yeah, that have protocols. I always tell them, like, make sure they have a program that they're not, like, you know, printing out the protocol off the Internet and giving it to somebody to do it. I'm like, make sure they have a program around the desensitization. And, um, and you know, it's it's such a gift. I mean, I'm, I'm like, oh, my goodness, I got a kidney from my stepsister, and she's doing well. I'm doing well. But we did everything possible and everything that the center said and it worked in our behalf. So, And, and that's the perfect recipe right there. You just said it. And yeah. you'll have good outcomes if you do do that. Well, thank you very much, Catherine. Thanks for listening to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network. Please make sure to find us on Facebook or sign up for our newsletter at rsnhope.org. Kidney Talk is intended for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment from your physician. Always seek the advice of your own health care provider regarding your medical condition.